Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Aaron Weinach with the uh, Russian Studies section of the New Books Network. And today we're talking with Professor David Hoffman about his new book, A Stalinist Era. So thanks for being with us here, Professor Hoffman. Okay, glad to be here. I suppose you could start off by giving us a bit of bio on yourself, how you uh, came to study Soviet history to begin with and who you studied with and so on to do that. Yeah, sure. I actually only got interested in Russian history when I was in college. I, I started out college as a math major, and I went to Lawrence University, a liberal arts college in Wisconsin, and uh, took a history course and was amazed at how interesting it was. I never had been taught history uh, in an interesting way in high school. So I had um, professors there, Charles Brunig and Michael Hiddle, who got me very interested in Russian history. And in fact, the question that intrigued me most was um, the about the Russian Revolution. I wondered why the October Revolution, which seemed to promise liberty and equality for all people, resulted not in a communist utopia, but instead in a Stalinist dictatorship. Uh, so that's in fact what I went on to study um, in much of my research, uh, including in graduate school and beyond. Um, so since I got so interested in the Russian Revolution and um, Soviet history, I decided to uh, continue to go on to graduate school, and I went to Columbia University. Uh, I studied there with Leopold Hameson and Mark von Hagen, and I um, wrote a dissertation on um, really a social history topic, peasant migration and working class formation in the Soviet Union during the 1930s. Um, and uh, I, I got intrigued by that topic because I thought it might actually answer my question. Um, that is, why, why Stalinism? Why did the revolution result in Stalinism? I was especially intrigued by some of the things that Misha Lewin had written um, in his book, The Making of the Soviet System about peasant patriarchalism and how this might have provided a social basis for Stalinism. But then in my research, uh, my dissertation research very much contradicted that idea. So my conclusions were in fact that the millions of peasants moving to Soviet cities during the 1930s actually provided enormous obstacle for Soviet officials and um, if anything, sort of impeded uh, the way that the Soviet regime tried to shape the population and make an efficient working class. Um, so that did not really, really answer my question. And I moved on from there to cultural history. Um, so my dissertation I did publish as a book, um, Peasant Metropolis, Social Identities in Moscow, 1929 to 41. 
But then I hey, that book was on my qualifying exams. Oh, is that right? Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I <it> was. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad you read that. Yeah, I did. Um, I uh, I moved on sort of from social history and actually um, switched to cultural history for my next research topic, and uh, that actually resulted in my book Stalinist Values: The Cultural Norms of Soviet Modernity, uh, 1917 to 41. Um, so I, lo- I was looking at official culture in the Soviet Union. Um, and one of the things I discovered when I was re- researching that book, I, I had a chapter on Soviet family policy, uh, and I was struck by some of the parallels between what was going on in the Soviet Union and what was going on in countries throughout Europe. Um, what what you see in, in the Soviet case in the 1930s uh, was previously described as a sort of thermidor, a turn away from revolutionary values, emphasis on social conservatism, um, you know, patriarchy, hierarchy, uh, and sort of an essentialist view of women that said that they had to be mothers. You know, um, this was a time when abortion was outlawed in the Soviet Union, 1936. and so forth. So I, I, um, I was struck at the parallels that the same sorts of things were happening in countries throughout Europe. And these include fascist countries and uh, fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, but also liberal democratic countries like France. In, in all those instances, uh, there were efforts to try to have more conservative social values, not so much for family autonomy, but instead to use the family as an instrument of the state, an instrument of reproduction, trying to increase the population. Um, so then for my next book, I actually did this on a, on a bigger scale. My next book was Cultivating the Masses, uh, Modern State Practices in Soviet Socialism, 1914 to 1939. And uh, I actually um, compared social policies uh, in the Soviet Union with, with those in countries uh, across Europe and around the world, in fact, uh, to try to put um, Stalinism in a, in a more international context. Uh, and I looked um, not only at reproductive policies and family policy, but also at um, health policy uh, and surveillance, state violence, and, and so forth. Um, so some of my findings really from from all three of these previous monographs uh, found their way into my my new book, um, The Stalinist Era, uh, because um, this is a, a more synthetic work which tries to sort of cover everything about um, Stalinism, but, but very much takes that approach of putting it in an international context to try to get a new new perspective on it. So does, I'm just curious then, since your uh, your book here uh, depends so much on on comparison and talks about World War One and so on, I was thinking of like French note pro natalist policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, do you think the same thing applies there? That you know, ultimately, like interwar pro natalism results from a reaction to the First World War as well. Yes, yes, very much so. the The First World War. Um, really had enormous impact on uh, a lot of different policies throughout Europe and including what 
became the Soviet Union as well, of course. Um, so you mentioned in France, um, you know, the First World War and the rise of mass warfare made perfectly clear the fact that military power and national defense depended very much on having a large and healthy population. Uh, so in France is actually the country where these concerns arise first, even before the First World War, but, but definitely after the First World War, uh, French policies, um, German policies, even under Weimar, even before the Nazis come to power. Um, Italy is a very good example. Uh, almost every country in Europe, in fact, tries to increase the birth rate um, for the sake of having a large population uh, which translates, as I said, into military power and also provides uh, labor during this era of um, industrial production. Having a, a large population translates into economic power as well. I, I, uh, I'm curious then to you know get back to the, the actual Russian case. We're in the first uh, chapter there. You talk about... Um, just the, the conditions that set up the, the Russian Revolution. And uh, you, you emphasized in there uh, Nicholas II's uh, fundamental wishy-washiness, I guess, is the, the right word. So I was wondering, it seems to me like the only thing that he's really iron-willed about is refusal for reform, of reform. <laughs> So I'm wondering what, what accounts for if his overall, you know, personality is so wishy-washy to follow whatever's been said last and so on. What accounts for this, this unique lack of, or, uh, you know, iron will not to, to permit any real reforms? Right. Well, I think that, you know, he had, he was somewhat narrow-minded. And so really the only thing he could kind of hold on to was this, desire to preserve the Russian autocracy and the Romanov dynasty. And so um, he had gotten the idea that conservatism and um, not reforming was, was in fact an important way to do that. Um, but more generally, he just clearly was not cut out to be a, a world leader. Um, in fact, he himself sort of admitted this. He he, he admitted that he didn't know how to lead the country. He didn't know how to talk to the ministers even. Um, he, you know, clearly not cut out for the job. And yet under the, the system, the monarchical system, you know, the person who became the ruler, it was not determined by merit or ability. It, they were determined by, by birth. So um, it showed a fundamental weakness in the monarchy and one that um, was essentially a, a fatal weakness for the monarchy when it came to the strains of the First World War. So um, not surprising that revolution resulted. And when I, when I read your book, I was thinking maybe it's, you know, total lack of imagination or something like that, that, uh, that contributes to that attitude of his. Um, yeah, right. I think, you know, um, if he had been able to look uh, at other examples, systems of government, um, parliamentary systems, or con even constitutional monarchies that, that he might have embraced as more effective, um, 
and tried some sort of reforms before a crisis broke out. It's always dangerous to be reforming during a crisis. Yes. Um, that that certainly that that would have helped. You know, he only really takes steps towards reform uh, during the revolution of 1905, and that's only uh, at the insistence of Vita and other advisors who are trying to save the monarchy, um, issues the October Manifesto and so forth. But even then is unwilling to uh, allow the Duma, the Russian parliament, to to function and have all its um, powers. And so, you know, the result uh, is really a lack of a successful transition to a constitutional monarchy uh, and no development of a parliamentary tradition that Russia might have built on somehow. Um, I'm still on your first chapter here. Uh, it reminded me of uh, the hilarious line from uh, Dr. Zhivago where he says that uh, it wasn't until the Civil War era that the problems of food and firewood became problems of fuel supply and alimentation. And, and uh, I've always loved that line. And uh, so I was wondering, you were, you were uh-huh. talking about uh, – uh, uh, mass mobilization as being a really important theme throughout the entire book. So I was wondering if you could comment then on on how does how does mass mobilization work? How does during the uh, you know during the Civil War era how do the how are the Bolsheviks successful in mobilizing people? Yeah, that that's a good question because mass mobilization, of course, is something that. Um, already it becomes an enormous challenge for all the combatants during World War One. So, so Russia has already during the First World War begun to take some steps towards um, mobilization, mobilizing both resources, natural resources, and also the population for the war effort. And then um, the Bolsheviks uh, following the October Revolution during the Civil War they then continue many of these practices of mobilization. So it means in in particular uh, state control of the economy. Um, A wartime economy is one in which the government is able to control uh, and channel resources towards armaments production, is able to um, mobilize or conscript labor as well as soldiers, uh, and also trying to um, control food, uh, food supply, which is an enormous problem. Uh, Again, that all countries during the uh, First World War were facing, including Russia. Um, And then during the Civil War, uh, it means, you know, trying to um, requisition grain in order to feed the armies, feed the cities, uh, and so forth. So, so it's all these measures of state intervention, uh, which lead to just enormous growth of state bureaucracy. Um, that once again is is characteristic of 20th century states around the world, but it it takes a particularly virulent form in the Soviet Union in, in its early years, because um, as you brought up, the fact that the Bolsheviks are fighting the civil war, this is a 
a life and death struggle. They need to mobilize all resources for the effort. Uh, and then a crucial fact is that the Soviet state is born at this moment of total war. So these are not just temporary wartime measures. Instead, they very much become institutionalized within the new Soviet state. So things, for example, like uh, state planning, state control of the economy, um, those get institutionalized. Uh, you have the secret police, which um, when it was created, the Cheka created during the Civil War, it was supposed to be temporary organization, but it's institutionalized as well. And so it never disappears. In fact, it only grows over time and plays a greater and greater role. Various practices such as surveillance. And here I draw on the work of Peter Holquist, who showed that all countries in Europe began to exercise mass surveillance of their populations uh, during um, the First World War, and that, in fact, that uh, was something that the Soviet Union or the Soviet leaders did during the Civil War and um, essentially did on a permanent basis from then on. So, um, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. That... Yeah, so, so anyway, in, in all these uh, respects, through various state practices and institutions, um, the Soviet state is intervening in people's lives uh, to a far greater degree than you know, had been traditionally the case, and, and then continues to do so, and that provides a basis for Stalinism. So then the, uh, uh, for our, our listeners, I was wondering if you could explain uh, about the NEP period, and then my my main question for you about that was if you think that, that you know, did the NEP period, uh, those policies really have a chance? I mean, you know, was there a different road not taken in NEP or was that always going to be a temporary compromise with the capitalists? Yeah, that's a, a good question and one that scholars have debated in Soviet history. There's this idea that there might have been a, a real alternative to Stalinism if only the new economic policy had been continued. It's something sometimes referred to as the Bukharin alternative since Bukharin wanted a continuation of NEP. Um, and I, I think it's important to recognize two things. Uh, first of all, you know, historians don't like to talk about something as being inevitable. So it's not uh, as if Stalinism had to happen. That would be overly deterministic to, to argue that. But when you look at the Soviet state, um, both how it formed and uh, the practices it used to rule, as well as the international context it was in, uh, it, there are definitely reasons that the new economic policy was not continued after 1928. Um, and uh, among those are what I was discussing a minute ago, the, these institutions of state control uh, are already there, these practices of surveillance, coercion, all of these are uh, firmly established. And they actually did not disappear in the 1920s. The 1920s were not 
quite as much of a golden era as sometimes is thought, um, because there still was quite a bit of state violence, uh, especially on the periphery of the country. The um, Soviet leaders were consolidating control in, in the Caucasus and Central Asia. They were using um, methods of state violence uh, that included, um, you know, deportations, mass arrests, and so forth, uh, that we sort of think of as characteristic of Stalinism. So the fact that, that those things are happening, uh, you know, even during the net period, shows that there were definite antecedents for Stalinism there. And then the other thing I mentioned a minute ago, the, the international situation, um, Soviet leaders were painfully aware that they were ruling, they were a Marxist party, but they were ruling a overwhelmingly peasant country, one that was underdeveloped, uh, one that could not compete militarily with uh, more advanced countries of Western Europe. Um, and increasingly, there there is this threat. Uh, in fact, throughout the 20s, there's this sense of capitalist encirclement, which means that uh, Soviet leaders realize they need to industrialize quickly to defend the country. Um, and then, of course, this, this threat becomes even more clear by the early 1930s, um, in particular, Nazi Germany and Japan uh, pose this enormous security threat to the Soviet Union. So this need to industrialize quickly um, is very much on the minds of all Soviet leaders, uh, even those who wanted to continue the new economic policy did want industrialization to speed up. So that th those sorts of factors really account for the fact that the new economic policy, um, this market road to socialism was not really followed, that instead a much more coercive approach um, that we know as Stalinism was followed instead. That kind of, I think, gets us into the substance of your, your second chapter there on uh, building socialism. So I was wondering if maybe you could comment on the difference between uh, what collectivization was supposed to achieve and what it actually, in fact, achieved? Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so collectivization um, it, it was a, a way to try to both modernize the country, countryside and to uh, switch from a capitalist mode of production to a socialist mode. So it meant the elimination of private ownership of the means of production, the ownership of land, livestock, and farm machinery, and the collectivization of those things. Um, so ideally, uh, Soviet activists believe they could persuade the peasants that this was a, a better way to do things, that that the old ways were backward um, if they were to consolidate all the land, work it collectively, work it not with horse-drawn plows, but with tractors, that this would greatly increase agricultural prosperity, um, be better for the peasants as well as being 
as well as helping state leaders to modernize the country. Um, but of course, um, you know, this was something that was not uh, where, where the promises that were made were not really fulfilled. And instead, collectivization became very much a way to increase state control of the countryside. So there had been these various problems with uh, getting enough grain, um, grain both to feed the growing cities during industrialization and also to export in order to import modern machinery and technology. Um, and through collectivization, because these collective farms were controlled by the state, it was possible for Soviet leaders to take as much grain uh, as they wanted. They, uh, once collectivization was completed, they, they controlled the grain supply. They no longer had to go from hut to hut trying to take requisition grain from the peasants, something that was difficult to do. Instead, they, they controlled um, the collective farms and controlled the grain supply. But the other thing that um, I think is very important about collectivization is, is how um, it was carried out. Because this is something that um, shows that Stalinism was not just an ideological um, movement or a result of ideology. It, it certainly was partly that. It was a, an attempt to eliminate private ownership of the means of production and to shift from capitalism to socialism. Uh, but they could have gone about it much differently. They could have uh, had a series of incentives and tax penalties to induce peasants to join collective farms. Uh, and instead, it was collectivization was carried out like a military operation where they would have um, brigades of activists go into villages, uh, use violence or the threat of violence to force peasants to join collective farms. Those who were labeled kulaks, rich peasants or class enemies in the village, they were forcibly uh, dispossessed and many of them deported. Um, so this was, uh, as I said, a sort of military operation where not only are you forcing peasants to join collective farms, but you're actually taking a large portion of the population that you view as hostile, that you view as unwilling to cooperate or even um, ready to sabotage collective farms and physically removing them from the um, village. Uh, so um, many of these peasants, of course, were deported to what they called special settlements. Uh, it's something that Lynn Viola describes in her book, The Unknown Gulag, um, which I, I cite in my book, The Stalinist Era. Um, and this was a way to um, presumably uh, get um, these class enemies out of the village so that collective farms could function without any opposition or sabotage, and then have a labor force in these sort of far-flung regions of the far north of Siberia. Um, of course, the result was um, tremendous um, suffering and death. Many of these peasants deported as kulaks um, died of 
malnutrition or disease or exposure in these northern regions. Entire families were deported in the middle of winter and sent to places where there was no shelter. They were just told to start logging the forest and um, meet their work quotas and in their spare moments try to build housing where they could live. Um, so that's something else I describe in the book, just uh, you know, not only the way collectivization was carried out, but the human toll that it took, the human suffering that resulted from it. I was uh, I was wondering uh, in the section on collectivization. I uh, mean, obviously, the famine in the Ukraine is, is was then and is now a pretty contentious topic. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on what you think the best argument is put forth by the people who argue that it was kind of intentional and, and perhaps even genocidal. Obviously, you take a somewhat different point of view. I was just wondering what you think the best evidence is that the other side cites. Right. Yeah. So this is a, a controversial issue. Um, I think the best evidence that the other side cites is simply the the, the death rates in Ukraine, you have, you know, enormous loss of life during the famine and some um, villages, some regions, uh, the population population is almost entirely wiped out. So it does seem genocidal in that sense. A huge number of Ukrainians die in the famine of 1932-33. Uh, and it's also true that the famine was caused by Soviet policies. Um, so it, it, from, from that, if you put those two things together, it seems like, well, the Soviet leaders, you know, they forced peasants to join these collective farms. They took the grain away. They left people to starve. It does look like a deliberate policy of, of mass killing. Um, now, sort of to take the other side, um, I point out several things that I think make it make the uh, famine in Ukraine something that can be distinguished from genocide, uh, and namely that this was not actually an attempt to wipe out the Ukrainian population. Um, it did kill several million people, and it was the result of Soviet policies. But Soviet leaders actually were fairly alarmed when uh, in late 1932, they began to realize that famine was uh, overtaking parts of the countryside and that um, millions of peasants were starving. And it wasn't out of any sort of sympathy. Um, you know, they were mainly alarmed because this was greatly disruptive to Soviet industrialization drive. Uh, and in fact, it um, did cause industrial growth to grind virtually to a halt in 1932, um, or I'm sorry, in 1933, there was virtually no economic growth in the country as a result of the famine and its effects. Um, so, so this was not something they that they intended. You know, genocide is something that is in fact intentional. Uh, and the other point that I make in the book is that other populations suffered as well. Roughly one and a half million Kazakhs died uh, during the 1932-33 famine. Um, there were Tatars who died. There were ethnic Russians who died. 
It was not something that was directed simply at one nationality. So more Ukrainians died than any other national group. Uh, and this, obviously this was a terrible tragedy. And as I said, it was the fault of Soviet leaders and their policies. But I think that we still need to distinguish that from genocide the way, uh, you know, for example, the Nazis genocide of the Jews. This was an intentional policy that tried to wipe out all European Jews. So um, that is something that's much different than a policy, than a sort of reckless um, policy on the part of Soviet leaders. It ends up killing several million people. Uh, it's not the same as a deliberate policy to try to wipe the Jewish genome off the face of the earth. That's genocide in the uh, you know, true sense of the word. Yeah, I was wondering, we'd have to shift gears here a, a little bit. Um, one, of, one of the other really interesting things I thought there in your building uh, socialism chapter was all the material on nationalism and, uh, or on, yeah, national, national feeling. And uh, I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate on how it is that a state which fundamentally ideologically rejects the whole concept of nationalism somehow ends up creating more of it in spite of itself. Uh, that right. seems like a big question. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a real um, paradox uh, in Soviet history. Uh, and um, so it's one of the things that I address in this book. Um, the important thing to notice uh when it comes to Soviet nationality policy um, is the fact that Soviet leaders actually believed they, they of course were against nationalism. They wanted to establish socialism, but they had a certain teleology. They saw uh, humankind as progressing through stages. And this was partly because they were Marxists, but this, this sort of uh, progression um, is a, was a more general part of, European Enlightenment thought that, that saw people progressing through stages from tribes to ethnic groups to, to nations. So Soviet leaders actually thought if there were peoples in the Soviet Union that did not have a, a sense of national identity, that they actually needed to uh, cultivate and instill that um, in order for these people to move along this evolutionary timeline towards socialism. In other words, they had to teach the peoples of Central Asia, they had to establish national identities and instill those. And it was only through those that people would eventually supersede a sense of nationalism and proceed on to socialism. Um, so it's something that Francine Hirsch describes in her book, Empire of Nations, this uh, sense of state-sponsored evolutionism where these different ethnic groups, and it is very important that the Soviet Union had a large number of national and ethnic groups within it, um, but these groups that they had to develop uh, a sense of national identity uh, in order then to become part of this sort of socialist family of nations and eventually they would um, move beyond nationalism. Uh, that would wither away and they would achieve socialism 
and ultimately communism. That was that was the ideal. Of course, the reality uh, was quite the opposite. Uh, once people developed a sense of national identity, um, it never went away. And so ultimately the Soviet Union breaks up along national lines and becomes 15 uh, separate countries um, corresponding to the national republics that the Soviet Union had established. Now, I thought that was one of the more poignant moments in your book where you described how people who hadn't mu- had much before in the way of a you know a national uh, aspiration or national culture then later got punished for it by the same state that helped them create it uh, that was uh, I, I don't know that I'd thought about it in quite that way before and that was uh, makes you sit back in your chair and think a bit right. Right. It's the the Soviet leaders um, and Stalin was particularly sensitive on this issue of nationality uh, and nationalist separatism. Soviet leaders wanted a certain type of national identity among these uh, national minorities, uh, one that would sort of, you know, still be part of the Soviet Union and Soviet socialism they did not want what they called bourgeois nationalism, which might lead to nationalist separatism. So um, Stalin was very ruthless in trying to eliminate any um, anyone who he thought was a, a bourgeois nationalist, as, as he called it. Some, if someone had a sense of national identity that actually meant that um, you know, their nationality should have independence, that they should become independent country, you know, whether it was Ukrainian, Georgian, Armenian, um, so forth, then he, he very um, was, was ready to use coercion to have those, those people arrested, in some cases executed as well, uh, to eliminate that threat. He thought that the integrity of the Soviet Union depended on uh, eliminating any sort of nationalist separatism and having uh, only these sort of tightly circumscribed and controlled national identities that that also um, entailed allegiance to Soviet socialism and the Soviet state. So, is there a, is there an international comparative context for this? The uh, you know promoting national identity uh, at, at the same time. Actually. Um, it is very fruitful to compare the Soviet Union uh, with other empires, um, but any comparison, um, and you know the other comparisons I make in the book, I try to point this out as well. Any any comparison is only valuable if you point out the differences as well as the similarities. Uh, so in this case, you see mostly differences. Uh, for example, you can compare um, the Soviet Union. Uh, as an empire, you can consider it an empire, uh, and yet it's very different from the colonial empires of Western European countries, uh, because those countries, you know, when they established colonial empires uh, overseas, they, they very much tried to differentiate themselves, that is, the colonizers, from those who were colonized. Uh, and this, in the Soviet case, there's an effort to actually promote the development of national cultures 
national languages even if in some cases in Central Asia, if there was no written language, they actually would develop it uh, in order that people there could be categorized in as Uzbeks, Kazakhs, and so forth, uh, and then develop their national cultures and eventually assimilate uh, into this sort of larger, larger body. Um, so that instead of trying to differentiate um, Russians from um, Ukrainians and Tajiks and so forth, they, they wanted to put everyone along the, moving along the same evolutionary timeline towards socialism. Uh, so, so I think, uh, you know, you raise the question of comparison there. It is uh, valuable to compare the Soviet empire with other empires, but you see um, essential differences there, which uh, are things I try to highlight in the book. Hmm. I think uh, I wanted to add a few questions. I was wondering if you can comment on in your third chapter there, uh, socialism attained. Uh, maybe you could uh, comment some on the shock work in the Stakhanovite movement as you have people uh, you know, getting uh, excited about uh, building uh, building socialism and so on. What's uh, who are the Stakhanovites and how do they fit into this kind of mass mobilization picture you're building here? Yeah, so the Stakhanovites um, were, of course, the hero workers that were held up as examples for other workers to emulate. Beginning beginning in 1935, uh, they set production records. Uh, the movement, of course, named after Alexei Stakhanov, who mined 100 tons of coal in a single shift. Uh, so he and others were held up as examples for other workers to emulate, to try to increase labor productivity. Um, that was something that was, of course, essential to the industrialization drive to try to industrialize the country quickly. Um, they needed to increase labor productivity um, but I also sort of put uh, Stakhanovites in a somewhat broader context in the book because I um, think that they actually provided an example of the new Soviet person. One of the things that's interesting, you, know, you see this in Stakhanovite biographies, other publicity about Stakhanovites, they're not only shown to be productive workers, they're actually shown to be um, cultured individuals, modern um, people who are literate, they're well-dressed, they value um, cleanliness, punctuality, sobriety, these other values that the Soviet government is trying to instill in people. Um, and they're also shown to be sort of prospering from the fruits of their own labor. Uh, and this is something that, that actually came out um, in the mid-1930s, you know, in 1934, um, Stalin at the 17th Party Congress declared that the basis of socialism had been attained. So that's in fact how, that's where I took the chapter title from, Socialism Attained. The, the Soviet leaders declared that they had actually uh, eliminated capitalism and by creating a completely state-run economy, they had 
um, created the basis of socialism. And so at that point, it was possible for this ideal of the new Soviet person to be realized. So workers, the, the Stakhanovites in particular, were sort of held up as the personification of the new Soviet person. Um, people who, through their labor and through the, the way they lived cultured lives, could sort of be examples of what all uh, Soviet citizens would achieve under socialism. Well, certainly that, you know, you went back and, you know, pointed out how important the Civil War era was and so on. I mean, the, the idea of talking about the new people, I mean, Russian radicals have been talking about that since Turgenev and Chernyshevsky. So mm -hmm. uh, that's a long tradition there, too. Right, right. It does go back before the revolution. In fact, uh, this idea of the, the new person. Um, so, so that's what they're kind of building on. And uh, as I said, it's only at this moment when they believe they have actually attained socialism uh, by the mid-1930s that, that the new person was no longer just a theoretical ideal, that they actually could come into being. And so the Stakhanovites, as I said, are the personification of the new Soviet person there. It's, it's proof, it's sort of living proof that the um, new person who is is fundamentally different than workers under capitalism because they're no longer degraded and exploited and they're no longer selfish and greedy. Instead, they're actually um, supposed to get rid of the vestiges of capitalism and egotism and so forth and sort of instead embrace collectivism. So that's, that's one of the values of uh, Soviet socialism that's being promoted uh, through the example of these of these people, on the subject of the new people, uh, I was not familiar with the Hergerovite. Uh, uh, I guess would be how you pronounce that uh, movement, and it, you kind of left me hanging. What I really wanted to know is what happened to those twenty five thousand women that got selected to head east. Do you know? Oh, so so uh, some of them actually returned to. Um, Moscow or other places in European Russia, but a lot remain there, continued to work. Um, it certainly did not live up to their expectations. You know, part of the campaign, of course, was to try to um, increase the, the population in the Soviet Far East. And there was this real security threat. This is in the late 1930s, uh, this, this threat, particularly from Japan. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a sense that they need to increase the population there. Uh, and that's why they're sending these women out to sort of participate in the building of socialism in the Far East, that they're, they're going to help populate the region, help develop it economically, and help have a, a stable population there that can also help support um, national defense measures if necessary. But but the realities, of course, were that conditions there were extremely difficult. Um, it was a, a region of the country where they had large amounts of forced labor, you know, gulag prison camps located um, out there. And so many of the women who went out with these sort of idealistic notions of building socialism, they encountered a very harsh 
physical and social reality once they got there. Um, so I, I'm not sure that it was very fulfilling for them, but um, but many of them did did remain there and work there, live there, and so forth. So it it did um, contribute in, in some ways to the the goal of state leaders. Well, certainly there's been some comparative work on that kind of thing done too, I believe, like the American idea of manifest destiny and Siberia is kind of this empty vessel that we fill with our hopes and dreams and so on. I think, you know, Mark Basson, I think, has written about that, as I recall. Right, right. Yeah, Siberia is uh, sort of the Russian equivalent of the American West. Um, So you can definitely draw parallels there. Uh, I was in that same same chapter there. Uh, you made a point of emphasizing uh, how this this fear of external enemies. You referred earlier to capitalist encirclement and so on. How that that helped drive the purges or kind of moving into the later into the thirties here. And uh, something I've always wondered about is uh, if Stalin is that paranoid about external enemies, then how do we square that with his kind of late hour denial that the Germans were actually invading? If he spent all this time worrying about encirclement and then yet right before June of of 41, he seems to be kind of in denial. Do you have any insight on that? Uh, It is, of course, difficult to um, see inside the mind of Stalin. Uh, I think the the important thing to recognize is that he, of course, saw an enormous threat. All the Soviet leaders did uh, see an enormous threat from Nazi Germany. Um, so it, it's not really true what some people assume that Hitler somehow duped Stalin into, uh, you know, signing the. Nazi-Soviet pact, and then leaving there would not never be an invasion. Uh, instead, um, I think Stalin's miscalculation came from his belief that Nazi Germany would never invade the Soviet Union while it still had a Western front to contend uh, with. And of course, the fighting um, Battle of Britain was, was still going on right. at this time. Um, so it, it was really... It was really a miscalculation. Now, of course, other Soviet leaders and Soviet military leaders, um, including Zhukov, who became the leading Soviet commander during World War II, they uh, they definitely saw this threat. They were urging Stalin to put troops on alert um, prior to the Nazi invasion, June 22nd, 1941. But something that I cover in the the chapter on World War II uh, is the fact that um, that Stalin's failure to do that was, of course, extremely costly. Um, it, it, in fact, almost lost the war for the Soviet Union. The, it was such a catastrophe at uh, the beginning of the war when Nazi Germany was able to launch this surprise invasion, uh, encircle thousands of Soviet troops uh, decimate the Soviet Air Force on the very first day of the war. You know, all of these things um, were just a calamity for the Soviet Union and for their their defense efforts. And it made it 
uh, extremely difficult to recover and win the war. In fact, uh, Moscow almost you know, fell in late 1941. Uh, if they had not held there and won the Battle of Moscow, the, it's not even clear that they, they could have survived and won the war. Um, so, so I think it, it's, you know, on the one hand, you mentioned Stalin trying to eliminate enemies and um, seeing enemies everywhere. I think that's definitely true. And um, not only Stalin, others, others saw um, not only foreign enemies, but internal enemies uh, within the Soviet Union. And that's something that, that fueled the purges. Um, but, but then, yeah, somewhat ironically, when, when the crucial moment comes to actually um, put troops on alert and realize that the Nazi invasion is Im- imminent, Stalin there um, has a great miscalculation, a very costly one, and, uh, and one that took a great deal of, of struggle to recover from. You, uh, I was, I was thinking about your section there where you're talking about how, uh, the you know, modern states, uh, scientifically quote unquote, uh, catalog the population, classify the population and so on. And that was, you know, related to the, the purges, you know, finding internal enemies and so on. Uh, I was wondering if, uh, if Zygmunt Bauman's metaphor here of the gardening state is the kind of thing you had in mind where, you know, modern states, you know, they, they foster the good plants and pull up the weeds and so on. Is that, is that an apt metaphor? Do you think? Yes, I definitely think so. I, uh, my previous book cultivating the masses, I actually explore that in more depth, but I do refer to it in this, uh, this book, the Stalinist era as well. Um, because I think that very much communicates the thinking of um, Soviet leaders and, and, and other leaders as well um, around the world. The, this, uh, this attempt to categorize the population and to identify you know, both uh, supporters or positive elements within the population and then, then negative elements uh, that need to be somehow eliminated or at least removed from society. So the whole notion of having, you know, these massive um, gulag labor camps is not only to, um, you know, put these people to work uh, in remote regions in Siberia and so forth, but to physically remove them from the rest of the population, that that is a way to sort of eliminate any kind of social contamination, um, negative influences, and also possible, um, you know, sabotage or espionage. I mean, one of the things I discuss, um, the end of the uh, chapter, after I discuss the purges, I talk about the mass operations and the national operations, and the fact that many of the diaspora nationalities are singled out as untrustworthy, um, because they actually have uh, a state or um, a possible allegiance outside the Soviet Union, uh, and therefore they can't be trusted. They might possibly, um, for example, you know, ethnic Germans, ethnic Poles, um, 
they might possibly be spying for a foreign power, a hostile foreign power. So, so what we see uh, in 1937, 38, um, are hundreds of thousands of people arrested and executed, um, not only as part of the, the um, great purges, but as part of these mass operations and national operations. Yeah, we're getting getting close to out of time here. I got uh, just one one more kind of big question for you about your about your book. Um, you you suggested at the end that World War II kind of has this unfortunate effect of vindicating all of Stalin's excesses, and then uh, I was quite uh, taken earlier where you quoted uh, Stalin as having told, I want to say it was his daughter, he said, I know, I'm not Stalin, right? So the, the idea is that Stalinism is bigger than Stalin the person. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, uh, what made, if Stalinism is bigger than Stalin, then what made it end when it did? Uh, you know, what, mm-hmm. how, how do we explain uh, Khrushchev's uh, uh, about face in, in 56 if Stalinism is more than just Stalin the person? Right. That is something I, I address in, um, in the, the conclusion of the book uh, because I, I talk about Khrushchev's de-Stalinization, uh, the fact that in particular he denounced the cult of personality the Stalin cult, that is, uh, as well as the the purges, the purges of uh, Communist Party members. Um, but equally important are other elements of Stalinism that he did not denounce uh, and that he, in fact, supported. Uh, so things such as collectivization, uh, the state-run economy and rapid industrialization, you know, the... The gulag itself, um, Khrushchev, of course, did release a lot of people from the gulag, but the gulag system was not abolished. It was continued. Uh, so from those things, you can see that Stalinism, the, you know, some of the bases of the Stalinist system actually did continue even after Stalin's death. Uh, and so in, in that sense, it's more than just Stalin's real part. Um, I mean, in the in the book, I define Stalinism in terms of a number of elements, and those do include Stalin's dictatorship over the Communist Party and over the country, and Stalin's cult of personality, um, and you know the use of state violence against Communist Party members. So those things come to an end uh, under Khrushchev. But other elements of Stalinism, um, including, as I mentioned, collectivization, the state-run economy, um, the planned economy, rapid industrialization, uh, and so forth, those actually continue. So, um, so in that sense, Stalinism was, was bigger than just Stalin himself, and that's why I try to explain it, not just as the result of Stalin and his you know, personal vindictiveness and drive for power, but actually as a result of uh, these various state practices of state intervention and mobilization uh, and control that are very much institutionalized within the Soviet system. And many of those elements, in fact, continued right up to the very end of the Soviet Union in 1991. 
I'm imagining a subtitle to your conclusion that says reports of Stalinism's death are greatly exaggerated. Uh, yes, uh, I guess that you could say that it 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 points out the ways that um, that out, that not every element, but many elements of Stalinism uh, that did continue, and and I think more generally, it's um, for historians, it's it's better to look at something like Stalinism more broadly, that it's not just the product of one individual, that it's actually, that it actually was an entire system uh, and a set of state practices um, that characterized Stalinism. Well, I'm, I'm wondering then, uh, David, if you could comment, since we're about out of time here, uh, I, I hadn't quite put this together when you described your previous work at the beginning about how, how much each of those successive books uh, builds uh, on, the, on the previous. So uh, where are you headed now that you're done with this one? Yeah, I'm actually um, now beginning a, a project on the memory of the Second World War. Uh, so this will take me more into the post-war and post-Stalin era. Um, in the Second World War, it actually became um, the most important symbol of legitimacy for the Soviet government in the post-war era. And so there was enormous effort to try to uh, commemorate the war through monuments, through museums, through written accounts, and so forth. Uh, so I'm very interested in in the way that um, the war was remembered. And one of the things I want to look at in particular, um, in fact, uh, the title of this new project I'm working on is War, Gender, and Memory in the Soviet Union, um, is uh, sort of gendered representations of the war. You see this in war monuments, for, for example, where the monuments... <laughs> Uh, very much are um, focused on trying to represent soldiers as men and um, sort of to build up uh, images of masculinity, a strong masculinity. Um, and the only images of women tend to be as um, martyrs or as mothers in mourning, that is mothers mourning the death of their their sons who were soldiers. Uh, and yet that very much um, sort of ignores the fact that large numbers of women, 800,000 women served in the Red Army during World War II, including over 100,000 in combat positions. Uh, so the representation of gender in war memorials, museums, written accounts, and so forth, uh, very much had an effect you know, on the, the post-war gender order in the Soviet Union. That sounds like a, a sequel uh, to a Karen Patron's book on the same subjects in the First World War then. That's right. Yeah, her book on the memory of the First World War. And this, this, uh, this would be a look at memory of the Second World War. Right. I've got a I've got a picture from a classroom I used to study Russian in in Vladimir with a, a giant World War II memorial silver looming over the top of my desk. Maybe I should send that uh, send that picture to you. Oh uh, yeah, that that would be great. I'm actually uh, very interested in looking at at different war memorials. These were, of course were erected in cities all around the country, and right. 
some you know some similarities of course they have some common themes but uh, I, that's that's part of what i hope to do is analyze the uh, different um, representations and monuments of the war well maybe when you get that far i can give you a shout and we can talk about your next book yeah yeah okay aaron that would that'd be great hey well thanks for uh, thanks for being with us professor hoffman it's been nice chatting with you okay thank you aaron thanks very much you bet Bye. Bye.